0: I want you to think uh, in your mind right now of what a staple food is in your home, in your diet. And then I want you to turn to someone. This is going to take about 20 seconds. I want you to turn to someone and tell them what your staple food is in your household. So think about that right now. Turn to someone on your left or right and describe what a staple food is in your home. All right, John, what is it? Ours is pizza okay let's let's hear some now because because you might be sharing someone else's, don't look at them and say what it is. just say what it is, and we'll we'll have to guess who whose that was. What did you hear as far as staple foods let's let's hear some Garlic, coffee creamer, rice ch- Chicken. What was that? Pinto beans and cornbread. Pinto beans and cornbread, okay? Karen? Chocolate. Chocolate. All right. That that will suffice. Um, So what I wanted to illustrate is this. We're going to dive into a passage today that in certain parts of the world, and maybe you've traveled to some of these places, I think rice and pinto beans were the only two that might track in certain parts of the world that would represent a staple part of the diet, meaning that this, this is served with basically almost every meal. And without this, we wouldn't survive. Like, like, if we don't eat this, we don't even know what to eat or how to eat, because this is a, a building block, a base part. But when trying to overlay this discussion on Americans, it's really weird. Because we look at this and think, well, what's staple diet? You know, chocolate, uh, garlic, right? I mean, chicken. I mean, just these different. There's just so much variety that I was trying to get my head around. Is there a common staple food? No, like none of us had a, a single thing that we say no. That's clearly it. Whereas many cultures throughout history and, and the world today would immediately know exactly what you're talking about. So here's what I want you to do. When I talk about bread today, that's where our brain's going is that that is a staple food. And I'm not sure that garlic or chocolate quite qualify. Uh, I told Jonathan ours was pizza because I don't know if we'd survive much without pizza around our house. I'm not sure those quite qualify. Again, in a culture and and in a setting where we're battling obesity, where food is plentiful, where we know we're going to get something to drink today, even if it's not to our liking or quite our temperature, it's really challenging sometimes to to go back and kind of get our head around what Jesus meant when he said some of these things. Um, Here's what I want to do. I want to get right to the title uh, because I know that some of you aren't going to hear a word I say until we get to this. This image with these words under it is mildly vulgar. Can we agree to that? Right? Yeah. Um, here's, here's, here's why I chose this. And I want you to know, I really do pray about things before I do them. Rob's on vacation, and I told him, I said, this may be my last Sunday. I'm not really sure. But, but here's what I wanted to do. This is slightly vulgar for a formal setting. It's not quite vulgarity, right? But, but in this setting, in a formal setting, this is right on that line where you go, I'm not sure if we're supposed to say that in church and have that image. And I don't know about this at all. Let me say this. The words we're going to look at in John chapter 6 this morning, they're, they're not on par with this in vulgarity or politically correctness. They are way past it. Way past it. And Jesus was teaching in a synagogue. He was in a place of worship, just like we're doing here. So I think sometimes we put the biblical text up on the screen and our minds miss how it would have landed on the first hearers. This is mildly uncomfortable, is it not? That's a fraction of what eat my flesh and drink my blood would have been for a teacher in a synagogue teaching to a group of Jewish people would have been. They would have thought that utterly detestable they would have said never in a million years. What are you talking about? Here's the second reason that I picked this. It's bread. Okay? Now, toast isn't a staple. We don't look at toast and go, oh, man, toast. Just You can't live without toast, right? It's, it's a luxury. It's, a, it's, it's part of it. But think of that piece of bread as staple food, as whatever it is that, that has to be eaten to survive. Without it, you don't survive. And again, to, to the people Jesus was talking to, when he said, I am the bread of life, they would have understood, I am the food that sustains your well-being. Without this, you die. That's where he was going with that. It wasn't optional like it is for us. Number three is the mystical quality of this. Every so often in the news, you hear of someone who finds Jesus on their toast, right? Or they, they see Mary in their soup, or they found a shell, right? And there's these things that that people kind of grab onto and they're longing for. Every time that shows up, I kind of do a sigh, and I just think, oh man, for those looking for an excuse to lump all of you in this room into one giant category of just grasping at straws for anything, here's their nudge toward that, right? I am going to have some conversations with some people that will now kind of use this as fodder for, you know, you Christians are all alike. You're all kind of looking for these mystical things that probably don't exist, like Jesus on your toast. Um, this passage is not a communion passage, but it, but it points towards communion, and we're going to celebrate communion. It's true that in communion, people can use that in this mystical sort of way um, to, to, to um to save them. And rather than seeing the signs for what they are, um, they're grabbing onto this, to this mystical component that isn't there. Um, the truth is, this isn't Jesus, right? This is a caricature in our culture that says this represents the person Jesus Christ. So if you feel any tinge to feel the need to defend this image, don't. This image and every image like it takes the all-God, all-man Jesus, and shrinks him into something that he's not at all. So don't feel the need to defend this image on this piece of toast. Don't feel offended that it's being used. Uh, Finally, the fourth reason I chose this image with this title is this. In our culture, it's super easy to dismiss Jesus as irrelevant uh, kind of this kind-hearted hippie that if you want to engage with, that's great. If not, it's no bother. There's, there's no real point to even engaging and discussing because Jesus doesn't affect our real life at all. We've actually lost something with that. Um, Jesus, as you read the Gospels, whether you're a believer or not, you, you cannot deny that Jesus made a giant impact. He wasn't ignored. He didn't strive to be relevant. He was relevant. To, to where he went. He was hated, he was loved, he was confusing, he was radical, but he was not irrelevant. I think this image on a white t-shirt might be an interesting exercise. You know why? Because right now, people can look at Jesus and just walk right by and not think of anything. A t-shirt with this on it would say, wait, what? That seems irreverent. That seems vulgar. That's, you know, some people would be like, cool, man, right on! Like They wouldn't have any clue what it means. But it would get people to stop and notice Jesus. And there was something in the way that Jesus carried himself as he walked around the Galilean countryside that drew a crowd, that got people noticed. And it wasn't, hear this, it wasn't because he was a kind-hearted hippie. That wasn't it. That may have been what started with it, but you read the Gospels and you see there's so much more to it. We are in a series called Red Words. where We're wrapping it up. And, and what we're doing is this. We're looking at the fact that Jesus taught with kind of these extended similes and short stories and, and these different ways of teaching that were, that were very story-related. I don't know if you ever wonder why. We've been kind of looking at that in this series. Why does Jesus teach this way? We saw last week that as he's confronting a person, he's actually rebuking someone on their greed, but he does so in a story. And there's a grace and a mercy and a patient instruction that comes with, instead of a head-on... Punch in the face with a principle in the shame-honor culture that Jesus walked in. Instead, he told a story, and it was kind of backdoor, and it kind of seeped in, and it kind of permeated, and if the person didn't want to be confronted and wanted to kind of not be painted into a corner, he could have walked right away and thought it didn't apply to him. Furthermore, listen to Matthew 13, 34. Matthew 13, 34 says this, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables, Indeed, he said nothing to them without parables. And then it says this. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So Jesus is actually fulfilling prophecy. It was predicted long ago that the Savior of the world would come, Messiah, and he would teach in parables. What's fascinating, though, is Jesus did not tell cute little stories. These weren't Aesop's fables. These weren't just nice, polite things that everyone is in total agreement, nods their head, smiles, and has a cracker. That's not how Jesus taught. He revealed the hidden things of God, but he did so in a way that was completely unorthodox. Jesus absolutely came to shake things up. He came to wake up, people who were sleepy in the church. He came to wake up and call sinners to repentance, And we're going to see that in a passage today. John chapter 6 is where you should be. Go ahead and turn there if you're not. Uh, we are going to tackle one of seven I am statements in the book of John. The book of John covers these I am statements uh, really well. And I'm covering one of them in this series because it's really in hopes of whetting your appetite to go discover the other six and what uh, is going on there In John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. If you take the I am's, now you can get this from any commentary, so don't try and jot all of this down right now, but this is just representing the seven I am's in the book of John. Think of them as, if you're on a road trip and that's your life, think of these as giant billboards. These are signs. These are these are descriptors of who Jesus is and what he's about. And taken together, the seven I am's are amazing. This first one, the bread of life, means he's the satisfier and sustainer of life. I'm the light of the world, means he's the dispeller of sin's darkness. And on and on it goes. When you take all seven, you begin to just marvel at who Jesus said that he was. Whether you believe him or not, you begin to marvel at the claims that he was making. I'll leave this for your community groups, most of which are on break, so this may mean just personal questions for you and your family. But if you've read the Old Testament and you understand what I am is all about, you recognize there's, there's a whole other layer to this that we're not going to touch on this morning. Jesus teaches in parables. I'll tell you what the I am statements are. They're a living parable. He steps into the metaphor. And he's not talking now about the kingdom of God is like this bread over here. He says, I am the bread. He takes on these metaphors in these seven statements. Jesus came to reveal, and to reveal is just simply to uncover that which is previously hidden. What did Jesus come to uncover that which is previously hidden? God, in a more full way. God's will, in a more full way. It's just like Jesus to liken something so mysterious and so grand as salvation and eternal life to something as simple and common and ordinary as bread, right? And that's exactly what he does in this passage. John 6.51, I am the living bread that came from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. That's a gospel passage, right? That verse is a gospel passage to understand the good news. He's laying out in a single sentence some of the most important truths of the Christian faith. There's not a lot of fill-ins. We're going to get to a few at the end, but Jesus is true food. That's the big idea that he's driving home with this. Interestingly, Jesus just miraculously fed 5,000 people. That's the miracle he just performed. He performed that sign, and then he's teaching, and he begins to teach about bread. Here's sort of the context of it. It says, the next day... People came to seek him out. Rabbi! Rabbi! They wanted some time with the teacher. Look at verse 26 of John chapter 6. It says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Pause for a moment. They were after Jesus for a free meal. Right? Now, think of the craziest thing you've done for a free meal. People get crazy when free stuff's involved. I almost got in a fist fight with a guy at Macworld over a mouse that I don't even know where it is anymore, but there was like this competitive thing that came in. They tossed it out to a crowd and we both went for it, you know, and I clearly had it and he grabbed it out of my hand. I was like, that is not going to happen. So I got it back from him and I'm like, what am I doing? This is a silly mouse. It has a wire on it still. How lame is that? We do weird things for free stuff, right? What have you done for a free meal? These guys, it was a pretty easy one. Blaze Pizza opened recently. You know you what? Know, this is the best coupon deal I've ever had in my life. I went, and to like it on Facebook, OK? How much time did that take? Not much time at all. Do I care that people know I like Blaze Pizza? No, it's our staple food. So I click Like on it. And if you liked Blaze Pizza on Facebook, you know what you got? You got an $8 worth free pizza that you got to put all your toppings on. Well, there are nine people in my family. We brought the whole crew. And we had Tori cook with us as well. So for a couple of likes on Facebook, we got a lot of food. Eli got his own pizza, four-year-old, right? And, uh, and so that was one of the best you know, free meals I ever got. This, this is kind of like, like, hey, let's just go see the rabbi. We got free food yesterday. I'm sure they told their friends. We told our friends about this deal. And so, and so people are showing up. Jesus is just calling them on. Let's just drop the pretense. You're not after me because don't start with a rabbi. You should start with me with chef is what you really should say. You want the free food. I get it. So let's just drop the pretense. You're you're here because you ate your fill of the loaves. Verse 27. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him he has sent. Wow. Now you can't just take one verse out of the scriptures, but I love how the Bible puts in some, some, some convenient little packages, things we can get our handle on. Do you want to know what the will of God is? Believe in Jesus. Doesn't that cover a ton of ground? If you believe in Jesus, it means you take him at his word. This whole series has been looking at the red words of Christ. Just take Jesus at his word. If he tells you to go do something, go and do it. If he says that he's your savior, believe that. That's the will of God in your life. Doesn't that simplify it? God, what's the will for for my life? I need to know. In the meantime, I'll sit around for a few decades, raise a family, start a career, get my retirement in place. I'm waiting. Jesus says it really plainly. You want to be about the works of God? Believe in the one that he sent. It's that simple. They respond with Moses. They respond with the story and the tales of old. Hey, God, we, know, we know about God providing bread, manna, in the wilderness, right? Supernatural provision. To some degree, I hear them saying this. Hey, the people of old got stuff from God. Jesus, can you help us out a little bit? We got a meal yesterday. Help our lives get better. I don't know about you, but that's a really common way to approach Jesus. And I don't think Jesus shuns or shames us for that. People come looking for, hey, make my life better. And what they're talking about is not eternal life, not the deep things of God. They just want their their health better. They want their relationships to improve. They need a better job, right? It's a common way to approach Jesus. I think these people were right there. Help our lives like Moses did. Jesus goes on to correct, look, it was always God, it was never Moses. Any Old Testament hero, really God's the hero using other vessels. And then he says this, God is going to give you bread that's even better than the miraculous manna from Moses' day, and here's why it's better. Here's why this bread will be infinitely better than the manna, because it lasts forever and it satisfies completely. Unlike the manna that that was told of all this miracle that God sustained to people, this bread is going to last forever and it's going to satisfy completely and look at verse 34 verse 34 the the crowd is into a frenzy jesus kind of has them where they want they say give it to us how do we get in on this and then verse 35 i right here i am the bread of life it's me he kind of leads them to this place of going, yeah, I want in on that. How do I do that? And then he turns to himself. He says, it's right here. And then Jesus takes them all the way to where I think he's been leading them all along. But you, as a good teacher, you want to start where students are at, where people are at, and you want to lead them along. If you jump out here into deep water too quickly, you'll just lose people. You're like, man, I don't. what are you even talking about right now? So instead, it's saying, man, let's, let's start where they are, and Jesus is just walking them along to deep water. Let me show you a passage that is, it'll just blow your mind. It's sitting right in our scriptures all the time. Look down at verse 53. So we're still in John 6. I want you, we don't have time to just take all of this and kind of walk it through. I've just kind of given you the, the cliff note version. John chapter 6, verse 53, he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, As the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate, he's talking about Moses, and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. This is the equivalent. This is not like Jesus slipped in bite me as a little kind of one thing to kind of be a little edgy and kind of wake them up a little bit. This is Jesus saying over and over and over, eat my flesh, drink my blood. If you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, this is true bread. This is true drink. Doesn't this sound a little repulsive to our ears? I'm not sure because I'm not... Jewish, and I'm not sure because I didn't live back when Jesus lived. But but imagine all the vulgarities that our ears are accustomed to hearing. We're, we're a culture that's losing its ability to have shame. We're a, con- we're, we're a country of no shame in some ways, right? So think of how accustomed we are to things, and, and then think of... Um, of for a jewish person in particular to be doing these very things is detestable and jesus is driving it over and over i mean count the number of times he doesn't say it once he's driving this home what's fascinating is this jesus doesn't you can't find jesus retracting later on anywhere in Scripture. But it's not like he pushed it a little too far and kind of got people a little worked up and like, I was a little over the top. I was just trying to get you to see a point. He doesn't retract or repent from his words. He is laying out plain truth for us to grab hold of. And as offensive as it kind of may be on our ears to go, I hope my non-Christian friends don't see this passage because that seems weird, gross, and I'm not sure what it even means. Instead, he lays it out plainly for us. And here it is preserved for all of time. To say that it was off-putting is to put it really mildly. Look at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. You could really say it's a harsh saying. It's not like it's hard to understand. Like, we don't understand the words you're saying. We understand the words. It's harsh. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Yes! Yes! Yes, we do take offense at this, Jesus. And it's not a mild offense. This true bread stuff you're talking about is really, really tough to swallow. We don't know how to handle it. We're totally thrown off by this. The fact that Jesus goes on to teach and, again, leave this truth intact where it is um, kind of forces us as the reader today to say, okay, again, he didn't, he didn't pull back from that. What is he talking about? So here's my question for you, disciple of Jesus. What does this mean for you? What is Jesus talking about when he says that if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me? But if you do, you have eternal life. Jesus is the bread of life. If we take if we're doing God's will, God's work, and believing Jesus and taking that his word, then what we know is that this is an accurate way to understand Jesus. He's laying out a truth for us. This is how you should view me. I am true food. So the question is, um, you're told to feed on and drink his blood. What, what can this mean? Later on in Jesus' life, Jesus is going to teach his disciples, both then and now, disciples for today, To observe a simple meal, which we often call the Lord's Supper or communion, right? Your brains, as we were talking about this, if you've been raised in church or thought about church or heard about church, your brains probably went to communion as we were talking about this. Let me say this. I don't believe that Jesus was teaching something right now as a little precursor to teach us about communion. I think that communion is grabbing onto this bigger, broader truth, this huge truth And it's giving us a way to express some of the realities that he's teaching on here. Jesus is, according to Jesus, the truest, longest-lasting, most satisfying meal that you'll ever have. Now, think about this for a moment. Think about your best meal ever. Think about your absolute best meal you have ever had. Ponder that for for just a moment, okay? I'm not going to ask you to share, but if you have that, can you raise your hand? I have one in my head right now. Okay. All right, put it down. Let me guess as as to what made it the best meal ever. Probably some component of the food was appealing, right, and good and tasty. Probably the circumstances in your life in that moment made you enjoy the meal? Um, because you may have had the same flavors in a different season. They just didn't taste as good. I would guess that the people you were with made a huge impact on how your meal was. It wasn't just about the food, right? It was about the company that was going on. It was probably in there that it filled you up, right? But isn't it true that the best meal you've ever had, within 24 hours, you were having another one that's Maybe very mediocre, but you needed to eat again, right? It didn't stay with you. It didn't last. It's a fleeting moment. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but my wife and I had this. We're like, this is so great. Like, how good is this food? How cool is it that we're here together? How neat is it that we're in this place? And there's this tiny little panic in you that's like, enjoy every moment. Because pretty soon meals will be chaos again, right? And we'll just be trying to keep things together. Because you know it's fleeting. You know it's kind of going somewhere. Now, we're not going to tap into this, again, just due to time, but think about the appetites that we all have. Not just physical, and not just food, but all these physical appetites, emotional appetites, spiritual appetites that we walk around with. We are are self-contained appetite experts, right? And Jesus is speaking into those appetites. He's saying into those appetites. This is something that's going to fill you up completely. It's going to satisfy you in a way that food never could. Feast on me. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to take a few moments to just kind of look at eating and saving faith. It's it's a way of taking Jesus' little living parable that he's talking about and just showing you some things um, that are sitting kind of right in front of our noses but we may not often think about. It. Here's number one. Food is useless unless it's eaten. It's not beneficial to you unless you, you eat it yourself. So it is with spiritual truth. It does no good unless it's, um, internalized. You can be around spiritual truth and not benefit one bit from it. There's a little bit like going to a restaurant without eating is like coming to a church without any belief, right? If there's no internalization, if there's no engagement with it, if there's no act of faith, and it's being in a restaurant without ever eating food and wondering why you keep leaving hungry. So food and saving faith are similar that way. Verse 53, unless, you hear the condition? There's a condition set forth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. The condition is you must eat. So it is with spiritual truth. We've been saying this all along with Jesus and his red words. Don't mistake hearing or memorizing truth for believing and acting on truth. Don't mistake hearing true words, memorizing or reading true words, and being devoted to that thinking it's the same as believing and acting on those words. Does that makes sense? Two totally different things. It may be somewhere around you cook the food, you clean up after the food, you serve the food, you're around people eating, but if you never take a bite, you will get sick and die without any food in you, right? What is the will of God, verse 29, that you believe in Jesus? The only belief that matters is belief that you are willing to act on. Jesus is essentially saying, you believe, great, here, Here's my flesh. Here's my blood. Eat it and drink it. Number two, eating is prompted by hunger. We've all tried and failed to fill up our stomachs forever. Like, not that we ever were under the delusion that this meal would be somehow lasting us forever, but haven't you been so full at times you're like, oh, I'm not going to eat for a week, right? Right? Six hours later, like, I'm starving. What's, what's, what's to eat? What's going on? Right? We've all, we've all tried to, to kind of keep ourselves filled up. Eating is prompted by hunger. I think that in our own body clock, there's designed into us some things that point to our need for God. It's funny because the strongest and weakest person are on level playing field when it comes to needing food and water to survive. There's no Superman. There's no Superwoman that can somehow get away from that. We need to fill up every once in a while. Some people fill up on sin. Some people fill up up on self-righteousness. Jesus is saying quite simply, fill up on me. And some of your stories, some of your testimonies could talk about hunger, right? And in different seasons of life, you said, man, I was hungry for all the wrong things. My appetites led me to all the wrong places. And then in this circumstance, I met this person and this thing was going on. And all of a sudden i found myself hungry for God. I've heard you guys say that a hundred times. It's not quite in that same language, but that, that hunger that God puts in us that prompts us to go and eat. Verse 57, just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Remember Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be Satisfied. That hunger that God's put in you, God's going to fill that. He's going to satisfy that. Number three, the food that you eat becomes a part of you. So it is spiritually. There's a mysterious component to it. All right, how many of you like cheese? Anyone like cheese? Yeah, a lot of cheese lovers, right? Now, to take cheese and just smear it on you is just kind of gross and weird, right? There's nothing mystical about that at all. You just wash it off. And then people think you're a freak because you smeared cheese on you, right? That's just really creepy and weird. But to take a piece of cheese, catch this, to take a piece of cheese, to put it in your mouth and do the common act of chewing it up and eating it, all of a sudden something really mysterious has just gone on. Can you ever get that piece of cheese back? You can't at all, right? It has now been broken down, right? And and, and a part of it is all of a sudden being used... Uh, you know, for energy, right, and stored places in your body. A part of it takes the exit ramp, right, and goes elsewhere. But that piece of cheese has fundamentally changed. I've already got bite me in the title. I can go there. Uh, that piece of cheese has fundamentally changed. You can never get that. You can't separate. Think about this. You can't separate you from that piece of cheese ever again. Before your first bite of food today at lunch, think about this. Take your plate, whatever you're about to eat, and just push it away from you, one foot away from you, you could right now get up and walk away from that meal, right? And you could be totally separate from it. After the first bite, you are, something mysterious has changed, and there's, there's something that's gone on that's really mysterious, that it's become a part of you and you become a part of it. I see a lot of what Jesus is talking about here in a simple meal. Simply taking a bite and starting to digest. Think about the word commune and what that Means here. Verse 56, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. We are now linked together in a way that's mysterious and we can't be separated. Again, you can admire Christ, you can study his life, you can even be around him and not be one with him. There's some participation in this that we join in and mysteriously get connected. Galatians 2.20, jot that down. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Number four, eating involves trust. The metaphor of eating the bread of life implies belief. Now, here's the truth. Every bit of food that you eat involves trust, right? I know what you're thinking. Well, what if I make the sandwich? Did you grow the tomatoes? Right? Probably not. You probably bought the tomatoes. Well, I've got an organic vegetable garden in my, in my yard. Bully for you. Did you make the bread? How about the mayonnaise? Did you kill the turkey? I mean, we, it involves trust, right? You are taking something. You have no idea of its history. You are putting it into your mouth chewing it up and letting it take the highways of your intestinal system and be a part of you. Every single day, you eat and travel, both of which require a tremendous amount of faith. When you drive in a lane on a road, you are trusting that someone over here is going to stay in their lane. If you're on a two-lane road, what are you trusting? That the person over here isn't going to drive over and kill you. Let me ask you a question. Are you 100% sure on the roadways? No. You're like 38% sure right around here, right? How about your food? Are you 100% sure that wherever you eat or whatever you make for yourself is, is not somehow contaminated, doesn't have some airborne disease sitting on it? Now you're all going to fast. You're like, I'm not eating anymore. Here's the truth. No. You're not 100% sure, but you walk all the time in smaller steps of faith in smaller matters. Jesus is beckoning us to, to take a leap of faith but maybe it's more step-like than, than some of us think. Some of us think, well, I could never do that because I don't, I don't place faith in anything. You do all the time. It's just that we don't think about it in such terms. Verse 51, if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. Listen to John 6, 66. Look down at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back. Why? Because they were offended. Does this offend you? Yes! And no longer walked with him. Verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Catch Peter's response. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Do you hear the trust there? We've believed and we've come to know. There's been this process of walking with you that even now that you're saying some really offensive stuff, we don't know where else to go. We've come to this place of trust. We think you really are who you say you are. Is it airtight? Are they 100% sure? I don't think so, or else there wouldn't be that grumbling going on. What is he talking about? But But they're way up there in their percentage enough to they say we're not going anywhere we don't like what you just taught we don't know how to how to interpret are you going to have some weird ritual now we have to drink your this sounds really weird but we're not going anywhere because we've come to believe and know that you have the words of life we've been filled up by you in a way we've never done anywhere else ever finally eating is personal No one can eat for you. No one can eat a meal for someone else, and so it is with saving faith. There is a personal choice to it. Verse 57, whoever feeds on me, he will live because of me. So there are five things that your next meal, you can kind of ponder saving faith as you're enjoying a meal. And maybe this is some of what Jesus was talking about when he's talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. All right, this is done quite intentionally on the third Sunday of the month, which is Communion Sunday. But I want to challenge you not to just dilute this hard teaching into, oh, good, now we get to fulfill this by sitting in a comfy chair and doing a little religious ritual for a few minutes. Jesus was talking about something much deeper than that. When you look at the two sacraments that Jesus left us, Both baptism and communion are signs and seals of the covenant. And what we're about to do as a church is to participate in this thing that Jesus later on said to do, to remember him by. Sacraments, the sacrament of baptism, you could think of a little bit like your wedding ceremony. When someone gets baptized, and by the way, next Sunday we'll be having baptisms, Today, Jim's going to be uh, teaching a class on baptism, if you're interested in that. In the sacrament of baptism, it's a little bit like your wedding day. You do that once. You're publicly making a vow. You don't do that over and over and over. So think of that like your wedding day. Think of communion a little bit like date night. It's not the only way that you stay connected to your spouse, but it's a formal time that you set aside like clockwork to say, man, we need to reconnect. We need to just remember we need to pause everything and just stop and dial it. You do that repeatedly. You do that on a regular basis. That's communion. Communion is thinking back to our baptism. It's thinking back to all these truths that we put our faith in. I would venture to guess there's a few groups of people here this morning. Some of you are Christians, and this time of communion, I would just invite you, let yourself return to your first love. As you participate in what Jesus is telling us to eat his flesh and drink his blood, we have the bonus of time and be able to look back at, at the more completed story on that. We could look at that and say, wow, there's something mysterious as I eat this little unleavened cracker that, that I'm participating in this grand drama. And I hope it's not something that's just ritual. I hope it's not something that just kind of floats by you. There may be a second group of people here. That's a group of people who are Christians and have an offense against a brother right now or a sister. Here's my challenge to you. We're we're given a picture in Scripture that we should stop what we're doing and not go deliver our offering or or participate in these kinds of things while they're still unrepented, untaken care of sin. So here's my invitation to you. During communion time, uh, it would be wonderful if you just stood up And if there's someone in this room that you need to talk to, grab them and go step outside. Just make things right. If there's some repentance that needs to go on, then just do that. Maybe that's a phone call away. Maybe you need to go make that phone call before you come and participate in communion. If that's you, would you just take the scriptures at its word and go and do that? There's probably a third category. A third category are those who are not believers yet. Here's my invitation to you. Would you unawkwardly let this pass you by? This doesn't make any sense for you. You could do it. We're not going to monitor it but it doesn't make any sense for you. It would be participating in something that's just kind of a religious ritual, and that's not what's going on right now. If you're not a Christian, hear this invitation. Jesus says, come. The invitation is here for you this morning right now. Here's how how simple this could be. This morning could be your turnaround. This morning could be your, I don't know much about this, but this tiny amount that I believe, I'm taking Jesus at his word, I want to participate in this. Would you just pray a prayer of repentance? God, I'm a, I'm a sinner. I want to receive your forgiveness. That's all I know right now. If that's you, you know what I would invite you to do? I would invite you this morning to let this morning be your first communion where you could participate in that. After you get done, come talk to me. I'll explain what just happened in greater detail if you'd like. All right? Let me pray. Father, thanks for this morning. Thanks for family time of getting together, God. And um, what we're doing here this morning in this room is gathering as a group of believers under your authority. As we celebrate Father's Day, God, really our our thoughts are all lifted to you. As you father us, God, you're the hero, and you're the one that sustains the men that stood earlier. God, you called sinners out of despicable places. Gross offenses, and you've offered yourself to us. And God, this morning, if there are those who are struggling with the trust it takes to take a bite and to have a sip, God, I pray you would overcome those right now in a powerful moment of time. God, for those of us who've been Christians for a long time, would you rekindle in us our first love? In Jesus' name.